This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to Lensmere Ears. This is a movie podcast where we watch something new in cinemas and then connect it back to the history of film as best as we know it. My name's Karsten Knox and I am a film blogger, film writer. My blog's called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And I'm Stephen Cook, arts writer for www.localexpress.ca. That's X, the letter, followed by the word press.ca. Tonight, today, we're talking Tim Burton, day and night. The Hollywood filmmaker goes back to the 80s uh, with a very special brand of weird and ooky and kooky, and we're going to get into his films, starting with Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Well, welcome to another edition of Lends Me Your Ears, and today we're going to look at the oeuvre, the filmography, if you will, of uh, that master of uh, gothic whimsy, I guess it's, that's the best way to, to, to describe it, Tim Burton, um, who is back with a very Tim Burton-y film indeed, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. And uh, I, I've got to say, it, it is a very Tim Burton-y film. When you're watching this movie, there's no doubt in your mind who made it. And yet it feels sort of slight. It's kind of like, well, it's basically a mashup of Harry Potter and the X-Men. And, and that's kind of it. That's kind of exactly what it is, to be honest. Um, do you have any thoughts on this film, Karsten? Yeah, I do. I do. Of course I do. I, I, I've seen it. And yeah, I'm, I'm with you on board with, with that assessment. Uh, I, can, I get the feeling that Burton has delved into a little bit of... of British fantasy, you know, he he likes his role doll, and he he's seen the movies that have been adapted from that kind of material. He certainly knows his Harry Potter. There's there's definitely all of that, but then there is this element of kids with special powers, and you know, I, I actually heard an interview with Burton who said, "Oh, I I don't really connect to the X Men because these are just normal kids." Well, in fact, <laughs> the X Men were really? kind of kind of normal kids themselves. I mean, they were teenagers. That was the idea, was that they were just kids who felt alienated. And, of course, a lot of people can relate to that. Um, they, they had special abilities, and they put it to the, the service of, of the betterment of humanity. And, and I, I guess uh, these kids are normal in that they are just kids, but their powers, they pretty much hid away in this, this special, special home, which is very hard to access because it's kept within this sort of time loop. Now, the story roughly is about uh, Jake, played by Aza Butterfield, who is a, a Florida teen whose grandfather, Abe, the, the amazing Terrence Stamp, I always love seeing Terrence Stamp, dies under mysterious circumstances. Now, Abe told Jake stories about his old friends, children with special abilities who lived on this island off of Wales. So Jake, with the help of his psychologist, uh, uh, Allison Janney, convinces his parents, played by Chris O'Dowd and Kim Dickens, that a trip to this island would bring some kind of closure. It's a bit of a, a stretch, but, you know, they go along with it. Uh, and so what he finds there is a ruin. The home is destroyed because it was blown up in a bomb uh, in World War II. But in fact, the house still lives, still breathes, characters still live there, um, but it's stuck in September of, of uh, 1943. And naturally, of course, Jake is also a peculiar. He's also a kid with special abilities, and and that peculiarity turn, turns out to be helpful with this group um, when they have to face up against the villainous Samuel L. Jackson and his cronies who are looking for that secret of uh, of powers. And anyway, it's a long. The plot goes <laughs> yes. on and on, but uh, but yeah, they, 
this definitely feels like it's sort of in Burton's sweet spot in that it's got the whimsy, it's got the fantasy, and uh, and I think Burton is comfortable with the sort of yeah. British elements. Um, and it's got the darkness. It's well, there's got, always yeah. got to be a hint of that as well. They, they definitely. They hint a little bit of fear, a little bit of, of, of creepiness. Um, but yeah, I felt the same way. I sort of felt like there were elements that didn't really manifest. Starting with our lead, I sort of felt like he was really uninteresting. And I, maybe that was to... to emphasize the weirdness or the peculiarities of the of the other cast members but uh but i didn't find that uh, asa butterfield brought very much to his character and i didn't really care so much about his his stakes you know i didn't i didn't feel like his arc particularly went anywhere he was sort of a confused kid at the beginning and by the end i didn't feel he was that changed no he's still fairly confused and it, you know if he hadn't gotten to the island would his life be any better or worse probably not um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Terrence Stamp would still be dead and, um, <laughs> that's early in the film folks. That's not really a spoiler. Um, and, uh, I'd forgotten Terrence Stamp was in, uh, was in Big Eyes, another, uh, recent Tim Burton film. So it was kind of nice to see him using his, some, uh, sort of, I, I guess, stock characters. He liked to return to the same actors over and over again when possible. Um, and there were lots of Burton touches throughout the film. You know, the, the kid with the mouth in the back of her head. Uh, this feels like very much like something that you could have easily seen in Beetlejuice, for example. Um, but it, it does it does feel like a, a patchwork quilt of uh, of used parts. Uh, also, the fact that they have to live the same day over and over again has a whiff of uh, Groundhog Day about it. Uh, and uh, I, I'm guessing a lot of this has to do with the book. I mean, it's based on a book by a guy named Ransom. I, th- I think a guy anyway. Ransom Riggs is the uh, Ransom Riggs is the name of the author of the original book, and and it, it has the feel of something that somebody wants to turn into a franchise. You know, they yeah. w- want to see more of. Eva Green and, and and some of these characters and then you know they hint at other other homes for peculiar children and other time loops around the world so they, it's kind of like setting up for a franchise that I somehow doubt is going to happen I don't yeah, see I, it I coming, don't, to, coming to fruition anytime soon I I, I, I agree uh, though I think it did reasonably well at the box office it, it I don't it doesn't feel like something that a world that we all feel like we need to return to by the end of it I, no I think if there is a, a problem with the film is that it doesn't create the magic that lasts you, I think a movies like this you want to walk out of of them and want to revisit that world and I I don't think that that's what happened here it's not to say that there aren't some bright flashes of of the typical Burton genius, and that's mostly in production design. I mean, it's a great-looking film. Uh, some of the CGI towards the end is a little shoddy, but but in terms of, of sets and costumes and props and the characters, I mean, the kids have sort of charming powers. There's there's Emma, the floating girl, and, and you mentioned Ava Green, who is basically she's kind of like the rock she you put her in a in a movie and she makes it better just oh, her presence sure. like her miss peregrine is a terrific character and just as she showed recently in the 300 sequel and the sin city city sequel and in petty dreadful <laughs> and in burton's dark shadows which was a film he did a few years ago ava green makes everything she's in better and it was great to see her in this wow i totally forgot she was in dark shadows that is not a burton film i would care to revisit but um Eva Green is great. She's definitely a highlight of the film. Uh, again, there was stuff. I enjoyed watching the film. It was, you know, a pleasant way to spend a couple hours. But but at the same time, it was that nagging thought that this uh, nothing really felt that new or or exciting because it, everything felt like I'd seen it before. And uh, and then Eva Green disappears for like the last third of the movie. Uh, yeah, she's you know, not in it much. She you know she turns into a bird and flies away. And uh, and you know I kind of wish the film had more of her, considering 
she's the main character in the title of the film. Yeah. Um, and it turns out to be more about this uh, Jake kid played by Asa Butterfield, um, who is, is fairly fairly underwhelming. I, I guess, you know, maybe he's, you know, it's along the lines of, say, a certain Charlie from a certain chocolate factory or a, a James who visits a certain giant peach that he's, he's, you know, he's not, not the, really the focus of the story. He's supposed to be kind of the normal, the reader's eyes and ears, if you will. And, and, uh, it could be that he's much more interesting in the book. I don't know. Um, I, I suspect that might be the case, uh, cause I, I believe it's been a very popular book for, for young readers. And, you know, I think at a time when there aren't a lot of films for younger viewers out there that have that element of horror to them, I think, I think it's probably good to have something like that out there at this time of year. It's, we're in that, you know, it comes out in that weird lull between the summer blockbusters and the the uh, fall Oscar bait. So, um, you know, I guess they found a sweet spot in terms of when to release it. Um, of course, another curious thing about it is the lack of a, a Danny Elfman score. Yeah, and we should mention that uh, as a little background on our our uh, director, filmmaker here. Um, yeah, Tim Burton brought up in Los Angeles, sort of couched in Hollywood, uh, he born in 1958. He cut his teeth working in Disney, doing storyboarding and animations. His first few films were shorts, including the original version of Frankenweenie, which he turned into a, a longer version in 2012, which actually I think is one of his better films of recent years. Um, and he did a, a short called Vincent. Uh, and then his first feature length was Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And Danny Elfman of Oingo Boingo scored that film. And uh, uh, basically has scored almost every film that he's done since, with the exception of Stephen Sondheim's musical Sweeney Todd, which right. which uh, makes sense, uh, and this most recent film, Miss Peregrine. So, you know, sitting, wondering, I actually don't know the reason why that uh, that he isn't, they aren't teamed up with this this film, because it feels like the music and the visuals kind of go together. They're a team that really works, and that's one of the things I really like about Tim Burton, is this partnership that he has um, with Danny Elfman. Uh, but then we went and watched uh, Girl on a Train, and there was a Danny Elfman score. So so that explains what he's been up to. I just don't know why it is th- that they aren't uh, working together on this one. It could have been a time factor. Maybe he was working on some other things and, and didn't have time to put anything together for this. I, I did read an article where he had been... Uh, maybe not bitter, but a little dismissive of Burton in his later years. Uh, in ter- I don't, you know, maybe he just doesn't, he didn't think the film warranted his time and effort. Uh, I know that there was, they had a bit of a falling out after uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. Which, yeah, I uh, heard that as well. Burton, uh, of course, it was his story idea. It was directed, actually directed by Henry Selleck, who was in charge of all the stop motion animation. But, um, I guess Elfman felt he should have received a story credit of some sort because he, of course, wrote all the lyrics for the songs, which are part of the script. Totally. Uh, and uh, I think he, he only got credit for writing the songs and, um, you know, voicing the, the singing voice, I guess, of Jack Skellington, who I guess um, uh, was had a different speaking Cr- voice. Chris, Chris Sarandon. Sarandon. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. From Fright Night. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so good, good choice there. Um, and, uh, you know, the, there's a, I think there's a pair of, composers who do the score for uh, Miss Peregrine and it's Elfman light. Yeah. I guess it, it it has that kind of tinker toy music box, you know, spooky evocative but not too strident or scary kind of sound that uh, Danny Elfman has made his bread and butter over the years and uh and it works reasonably well. It's it's an easy sound to emulate. Uh cer- certainly he has those those kind of key style markers and uh you know, so you 
you know, unless you're really paying close attention to the score, it, it's it's uh, it's not necessarily the biggest drawback in the world. But it, you know, it's kind of kind of weird to see that happen. I mean, Hitchcock and Bernard Herman had a falling out over one thing or another around the time of um, Torn Curtain. So it's it's not uh, it's not unusual this sort of thing happens, especially when perhaps the composer feels his work is an important, crucial part of a film, and the director may feel that it's just one of many other parts that yeah. need to come together and and uh you know anyone can be replaced i suppose um yeah burton uh i i, I mean i noticed his talent right away with uh with uh, peewee's big adventure and um you know the, he had a pretty great run of films uh you know right from the get-go if you look at all of his features frank and weenie i don't think uh i had a chance to see until years later it came out on um on, on VHS and, and later Laserdisc. Ooh. Uh, and, you know, of course, it was his, one of his Disney effort, almost like a demo film for, for making a feature. Um, he wouldn't work for Disney for, for many years uh, yet. But, uh, you know, with Beetlejuice and, and then handed the Batman film as his third feature is a pretty astounding, you know, considering all the buzz around that film to, to get that project as only your, your third feature when someone was riding on it, uh, you know, the, the Mike... Uh, the original Michael Keaton Batman. That, that that's saying quite a lot as to how f- quickly his star rose. Um, and then, of course, he did Batman Returns after Edward Scissorhands, and it was a great run. And in fact, you know, I like all of those films. And then uh, in two thousand one, he dropped his first big stink bomb with his uh, reboot of Planet of the Apes, which I don't. I, I'm sure somebody liked it, but I'd be hard pressed to find anyone who did. Yeah, it's not one. When people think back on their favorite Planet of the Apes movies, uh, that isn't the one that they choose <laughs> and there's a lot to choose from because there was the original the mini sequels and now they've rebooted the whole thing the whole franchise with a bunch of prequels uh which yeah which actually i know some people like i'm not fond of them at all because i think the cgi is like painfully uncanny valley flawed but the one thing i did like about burton's planet of the apes movies was i, I like that he went back to the masks and the makeup i, I felt like the apes you know, it wasn't CGI, but it was terrific, terrific makeup, terrific costumes, and uh, and that was one of the things I thought. Well, well, that works. Uh, but uh, you're right; it's it's not a not a great movie, and the ending doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, so there's all of that. Uh, but but yeah, we've actually taken a few pot shots here at Mr. Burton since we started talking about it. It's yeah, like true. we need to let's let's uh, let's try and focus on a few of the things, the reasons why we chose him. Uh, it wasn't necessarily because we loved his new movie, which we didn't. No. But but it does have the threads of the things that we that I'll, I will speak for myself that I like about Tim Burton. I like the fact that he has, through his career, managed to maintain a certain kind of quality of thematic quality in his work. He's he's fascinated by stories of outsiders, of misfits, people who don't fit into the world quite right. Um, he's very he's he really loves to tread that line between humor and horror, uh, between whimsy and creepiness. And that is true of almost all his movies, though his recent big eyes might be the exception to that. Though that still has whimsy in oh, it. Oh, for sure. But it just, it doesn't quite, it's very, very pastel-y. Yes. Uh, you know, Southern California pastel. Whereas most of his movies, especially those early ones, you know, are quite a different kind of story. Uh, I was sort of surprised when they made Adam's Family uh, movies because that he wasn't involved in those because <laughs> those seems like perfect yes. for him. Uh, and if they ever decide to do an Edward Gorey adaptation, he's the man. For sure. He's that guy. And I, I also appreciate that he really loves the Universal Monsters. Like, he really, he has seen all those those black and white monster movies, those horror movies from the from the 30s, and he, he it influences every time he gets behind the camera. I, I'm surprised he hasn't been tapped to do do an Invisible Man 
you know, because we've we've had some terrible Frankenstein movies, some pretty bad Dracula movies. Uh, there was that was it a Wolfman movie with Benicio del Toro? Yeah, that's which right. I, which I didn't even bother seeing. So they haven't touched the Invisible Man yet. And I think Burton could have fun with that if they kind of stick with the James Whale, H.G. Wells kind of origins of it. And I, I guess it's just because lately the misfires have outnumbered the positive films, and that's why uh, Burton has kind of fallen into this stereotype trap, I guess. And 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 Miss Peregrine isn't going to help him get out of that one little bit. Um, even though it's not a, an all-out dud. The, the, if you like Burton, you should see it and enjoy it, and especially in the big screen. But uh, it, it's also more of a bunt than a, than a, uh, a line drive or a home run. And uh, we'll, we'll look at more of the films that we, we actually like by Tim Burton in the next uh, segment. Well, maybe we should go back to the beginning. We've already talked a little bit about Pee-wee's Big Adventure, but... Uh, it was a pretty special film when it came out. Uh, I was already aware of Pee Wee Herman. A lot of people had never heard of him, especially in Canada, because uh, he was, uh, at the time, he was a big fixture on MTV for quite a while. Like, he would show up on some of their specials. I remember there's they had, a like, a Christmas special filmed in the MTV offices, um, and uh, it ended, and Pee Wee was kind of like the host who was waiting for Christmas to come. It was kind of like a precursor to his actual Pee Wee Herman's Christmas special, which is one of my favorite hours of television of all time. And it ended with uh, with Brian Adams singing Reggae Christmas while Pee Wee danced around in a in a Rastafarian wig with a Santa hat on it. It's, I'm sure it's on YouTube, um, but it's not a, it's not it's not anything we got to see in Canada. In fact, um, I first became aware of him uh, in the early '80s. I was quite young, and um, see, uh, they ran a summer replacement for Saturday Night Live, and they showed this sketch from the Pee Wee Herman show, and it was. It was for this show called Twilight Theater. It was a Lorne Michaels production. It was hosted by Steve Martin, but it was taped bits. It wasn't a, a live show like Saturday Night Live. And it was just sketch comedy. And I, I think a lot of it drawing from sketch troops and, and celebrities around Los Angeles. But it had kind of a weird, offbeat uh, kind of feel about it. I think maybe Lawrence Schiller uh, from Saturday Night Live, who did some of their otter kind of film segments, might have been in charge of that to some degree. And um, so they, they had, uh, a, a, and I've still have yet to find a copy of this. This is not turned up on YouTube as far as I know. It might be out there, but, uh, I, you know, I, nobody I know even remembers this thing. I think there were only a handful of episodes aired. And they showed a, a sketch from the Pee Wee Herman show. And it was, I guess, they either they recreated his set from the Groundlings Theater or his show at the Roxy in the studio, or they just went there and filmed it. And it was just super manic. It, I mean, he's still pretty manic, you know, in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, but this was like ramped up to 10, you know. And uh, it's even more, it was even more manic than that HBO special that he did, which was the live version of his groundling sketch comedy show. It was just a lot of running around and fast talking and puppets being flung about. And, and it was just, uh, it was, you know, giant underpants and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and, and then he transferred that into the hour-long HBO special, which was a little more reined in still pretty crazy but uh and then uh he, he and tim burton kind of had this meeting of minds for Wee's big adventure the story of a boy in search of his bike and uh it's you know you go back and it's a pretty strong film it just has such a strong visual sense i mean it's basically like somebody took their toy box and just threw it at the screen and uh and elfman uh, i believe in his first orchestral score like just goes all out with a nina rota and uh, kind of references and, and this kind of very fun euro sophisticated uh lounge music kind of feel and and just so many different parts of it just click so well you know just the the, the pacing of it and peewee's bigger than life uh um personality and the exploitation of various movie cliches and uh 
you know, uh, at that point, Phil Hartman was on board as one of his main collaborators and it had a big hand in the script. So there's a very strong, uh, very arch kind of comic sensibility about it. Um, and, uh, you know, as we learn in later years, Burton is really only as good as the scripts that he has to work with uh, most of the time. So uh, a, lot, a lot clicks. It became a cult hit. Um, it played at the Paramount Theater in Halifax, I believe. Uh, I had a friend who saw it on acid. Uh, and uh, <laughs> when, uh-huh. uh, when Large Marge makes her appearance, and, and, uh, and those who have seen the movie will know what I mean when I say Large Marge, when she has her moment, uh, he just went into spasms, basically. <laughs> so rec- do not recommend seeing Pee-wee's, Herm- Pee-wee's Big Adventure on acid, uh, no matter how tempting it might seem. <laughs> it could scar you for life. So... Um, not something to remember. But anyway, Tim, Tim Burton was basically arrived on the scene and pretty much fully formed as far as a feature director goes after having done Frankenweenie and his stop motion, Vincent Short, and, uh, and a bunch of other uh, sm- small minor projects. And uh, I guess he worked on uh, The Black Cauldron and The Fox and the Hound right. at Disney. Those are some of his early uh, Disney projects. But um, there, there, there's a lot of confidence in the film, it, but it's you know not at the expense of, of just making the most fun movie you could imagine. And, right. Uh, you know, I think it still stands up pretty well. Well, here, I knew that eventually we would come to, to a point where you and I would have have a pretty major disagreement. Okay, and this fair might enough. be it. Well, I, and I, I'm, it, I'm glad uh, to see it eventually happen. Fair enough. Let's get like, out of the way. Well, uh, I, and it's not that I don't admire Burton's visual sense. I already mentioned that. But I can't stand Pee Wee. I never <laughs> liked him, never understood, got fair the enough. humor. I just find him kind of creepy and intense. And I, I kind of get that he is this, like, like, fixture of chaos that like there is there is something about peewee that appeals to people because he's so over the top and he has these mannerisms but i find it totally grating and he makes my skin crawl <laughs> so so for me burton's first film really is beetlejuice because my memories of peewee's excellent adventure whatever the hell it is <laughs> i've just i've kind of blocked it like I, bill and ted yeah that's right i just can't i can't even i can't even go there and 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 i and while i like i said while i appreciate the originality and the the sort of the the frenzied energy of of it i i just yeah i cannot i cannot appreciate it so so for me beetlejuice was was it beetlejuice and i think edward scissorhands are maybe the sort of urtext of of burton just because it brings in that that kind of darkness that goes along with the humor in such a great way edward scissorhands feels like like a fully formed fairy tale um, like a modern suburban fairy tale in a way that uh that i had never seen before and i just i thought was quite wonderful and it of course made johnny depp into a star as frequent collaborator in later films uh but beetlejuice is one that i can always go back to uh partly because the music uh harry belafonte is never sounded better (laughs) in film um and uh and partly just because it's it's that mix of of elements uh it's got a serious uh passion for sort of 80s um you know style and intent and the and the 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 whole like material decade uh of these like new york arts people who have been have decided to go to the country but it's not really the country (laughs) it's it's some imagining the fake world and then and then there's the the innocent goth uh, teenager played by Winona Ryder, uh, and then there is the incredible Michael Keaton as the the title character, who is this this uh, 
terrifying demon, basically, who can can really mess with people's lives. Uh, and you know, and, and amidst all of that, Alec Baldwin uh, and uh, you know, and and and, and uh, Gina Davis, yeah, Gina Davis, and uh, they're kind of like the sweet, cute couple who who become ghosts, and and they are kind of sweet and cute, but uh, <laughs> but they they kind of fade into the background. With all these other really big performances, Catherine O'Hara is just amazing in this. Yes, she's terrific. Um, well, you know, I, I can't deny someone who would find Pee Wee annoying and creepy, especially considering things that happened uh, further on down the road in his career, which have nothing to do with Tim Burton, uh, aside from the fact they happened in Florida. Um, but um, the uh, you know, it, it's an example of how skilled he would become at creating a world. In a, encapsulated in a movie and his ability to kind of, you know, and, and, and be the kind of overlord of, of this kind of crazy world and, and, and um, kind of bring it to life in a, in a way that uh, really draws you into the film. And of course, you know, he does that at his best in, in films like, uh, like Beetlejuice and, and Edward Scissorhands. And um, yeah, Beetlejuice is, uh, you know, the, the character is just a, a fantastic comical creation there's really not a whole lot else like it i guess you know he he's a bit like kind of groucho marks plus used car salesman plus demon from hell like it's like it's it's kind of that kind of crazed and self-possessed and and uh, i really need to go back and revisit that film i haven't uh, rewatched it for this podcast but i do have really strong memories of it yeah it is sort of a looney tunes kind of craziness oh, yeah. about it yeah totally the cartoonishness really comes to the fore in this film i think of that big snake and then the the underworld and the various people that you meet in the reception room and waiting, <laughs> yeah. waiting to get into the underworld. And you got Sylvia Sidney uh, in, in one of her later roles. I mean, she worked with Hitchcock and she's wonderful in films of the 30s and 40s. And here she is uh, just as this sort of matronly kind of creepy woman who's uh-huh. in charge of letting people uh, uh, past the pearly gates, I guess, or, you know, into the, into the next realm. And, and, and she's a fantastic addition. And I think she shows up in, in a couple other things uh, that Burton did uh, as well. But uh, that, that's basically his, his strength is being able to corral his team of art directors and, and, and prop makers and, and uh, you know, the art crew into uh, putting something on the screen that looks like nothing you would ever see in, in reality. And, and, uh, you know when he's got you know when he's got a story to work with then it, it all works yeah. magically i totally agree and i i remember when he was given the opportunity to, to do batman and batman returns and and i remember thinking to myself well it's not exactly my batman like it's not the batman that i had envisioned uh from the comic books i read when i was a kid but it was what i really liked about it was it was it was his version of batman it it incorporated all those things that are sort of part of his thematic makeup the, he's an outsider he's he's a misfit he has a lot of uh unresolved stuff with his environment and and his people the people around him and and you know i i don't think that the first film anyway has really held up it does, hasn't aged that well but but i will say that as part of of Tim Burton's overall body of work, it fits in really nicely. Both of the films do. Um, the second one feels kind of like the Halloween Batman <laughs> story because it goes way dark and way creepy and it becomes this bit of a grotesquerie with all these various villains and their various issues. But uh, but I can still admire that it's a part of its one filmmaker's vision and and that still holds up for me. Yeah, it's, I, I didn't want to talk too much about Batman, but I remember being very excited for the first Batman, thinking, uh, although, of course, 
like most people, I was a little puzzled by Michael Keaton. You know, I just thought of him with this kind of poodle hair dude and, 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 and just thinking, you know, his weak chin and just thinking that was all wrong. And, and as it turns out, he wasn't bad. Uh, he's a good Bruce Wayne, uh, and his Batman was just fine. Uh, and, and Jack Nicholson's Joker is every bit as ludicrous as Cesar Romero's. Like he's definitely, he definitely wasn't definitive. It's just Jack Nicholson in, in white clown makeup, uh, uttering a bunch of one-liners and, and, uh, and not really going much beyond that from, from my memory of it. And, uh, I thought, well, sure, you know, it's stunt casting, but I'll, I'll take it. Yeah, um. and with the prints on the soundtrack. No, it's absolutely, <laughs> you're absolutely right. Uh, and I remember reading a story that the script had so many problems and they were constantly rewriting while they were shooting. Yes. That there is, towards the end of the film, the Joker is there with Vicki Vale and they're going into like a cathedral, the Gotham Cathedral, where, you know, it ends at the at That's the top right, of yeah. the building. Sort of, again, Universal Monsters has got a little bit of, of something going on there. Hunchback feels, of Notre Dame. Yeah, totally. Uh, but... Um, but I remember reading reading that Nicholson turned to Burton and says, well, why are we going in here? Because they hadn't written the script. They didn't know why they were going there. And when you watch the movie now, you you do get a sense of it. This, the patchwork element and the narrative is very loose. Uh, yeah. You, yeah. You know, I mean, the visuals are all there, but everything else. Yeah. You, there is a too many cooks feeling. Because there was a lot riding on that film. And, and uh, you know, I don't know who else at that time might have been able to to do a whole lot with it, Richard Donner, no, <laughs> uh, Lester, I don't know. It's it's. Uh, I don't know that anyone would have done any better. Certainly, you know, the, the films that followed were certainly a lot, lot worse. So uh, you know, made you pine for the return of of um, of Burton and and yeah, ba- Batman. It, it's it's cool that Batman uh, Returns is so perverse. Yeah, it uh, is and, cool and so twisted. I remember uh, when we still had the uh, the Empire, you know, six screen multiplex in Bedford. And they had one of those charity days where it's like every, you know, show six movies for a buck or whatever, and it's all kids or family movies. And one of the ones they showed was Batman Returns. Oh, great. I'll get to see it on the big screen again. So I went, and there were a bunch of people there with really young kids. Like, I'm talking like three and four years old, maybe even younger. You know, and as soon as the Penguin shows up, they were bawling. They yeah. were in tears. This is, you know, boo, Batman. And, you know, maybe they've been watching the the, the kind of... The, the very cool retro Batman cartoon that uh, was airing on TV around that time. But uh, yeah, they were not prepared for the, the dominatrix Catwoman and, and the kind of ghoulish freak show penguin who's just eating raw fish out of a bucket. And, and Christopher Walken. And as, <laughs> yeah, as, as Max Shrek, basically named after the actor who played Nosferatu. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I almost see him with the sharpened teeth of the character that he played in Sleepy Hollow. I don't think he did, but he did have that awesome hairstyle. Yeah. Almost an homage to his hair in A, a View to a Kill, I think. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely worth returning to. You know, I don't, I don't think people think of those movies that fondly now just because it spawned those later Schumacher ones. But it, it is worth returning to the, those two Burton Batmans. And of course, you also get uh, a nice little cameo from Paul Rubens slash Pee Wee Herman as uh, the Penguin's dad which was a, a nice little nod. And one of the first things he did after uh, his scandal that uh, kind of stricken him from the TV screens, it was one of the first roles that he got to play. So Is that was- right? I always thought his scandal was later in the, uh, in, in the years, but, but yeah, you know, I never had a, tr- I mean, <laughs> not to say that that's, that I, that exposing yourself in a public place is a good idea, but I never had a tr- any trouble with, <laughs> with Paul Rubens generally. I always thought he was a pretty great actor. I just, yeah. that particular creation rubbed me the wrong way. So anyway, I'll leave yeah. it alone now. <laughs> yeah. I guess it just reminded me of like scary kids hosts that I grew up with, you know, from like Howdy Doody to Pinky 
Healy and 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 that, and that kind of thing. You know, that, I mean, that's essentially what it was an homage to. Just like just ha- after having way too much sugary cereal, I, be, I guess. Right. Um, now, now I wanted to say uh, if if we could move forward a little bit. Oh, in, sure. In yeah, Burton's, I'm done with uh, Batman in Burton's uh, work. Obviously, The Nightmare Before Christmas was beloved. Uh, even though Burton wrote and produced, he didn't direct. It's it sort of established his his uh, his feature uh, animation ambition, and he's gone on to do other interesting uh, animations. Uh, but um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I understand the appeal of that film, and I understand why people love it. Uh, it has a, an amazing visual sense, but it's it's I, I never it never really manifested with me. It never really resonated with me. My favorite Tim Burton film is Ed Wood, still to this day, and I'm I think it's because uh, it I I think it's because it's maybe the best biopic that I can think of, just in terms of creating something that uh, uh you know it, it the the thematic quality of the film which is basically celebrating enthusiasm over talent and that i really can relate to in some <laughs> ways and i just i just love that about the film i love the cast i love that it was black and white i love martin landau and and johnny depp showed a side of himself that i don't know that we have seen before since it is a really great film about Hollywood. And I remember when it came out, there were a lot of critics who just thought it was perverse that a talent like Tim Burton, at that time, he basically hadn't had anything. He hadn't done anything wrong in anyone's eyes. He was just seen as this terrific creative uh, master, would devote uh, as much attention to someone like Ed Wood, who is famed for being the worst director ever. But... In retrospect, and and I think over time, I think we've we've realized that uh, that there is there is something really special, not only about the subject but about that film. I I love Ed Wood as well, and I guess if, if pressed to pick a favorite, I would go with that. Oddly enough, um, a lot of Ed Wood's success depends on its script. Again, um, although you know Burton certainly brings a lot to the table. It's not. You probably wouldn't have got made without him. Um, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski. Uh, Larry is one of the uh, trailers from Hell Crowd, if you're ever on that website, the the Joe Dante uh, trailer commentary site. And he's he's uh, he's quite a bit of fun on there. But uh, you know, primarily he's a screenwriter. And uh, Ed Wood, uh, with him and his writing partner Scott Alexander, was was a big deal for him and really kind of got his career off to a great start. And then the same guys who wrote Big Eyes, which is the other Tim Burton biopic about a kitschy artist whose work kind of succeeds in spite of itself. Yeah, it's, yeah. And, and it's kind of interesting how those two, and it's, again, it's a, it's a very 60s period piece with all the, the pastels and, and uh, the modern design house and, and uh, the fashions and everything. So, so it's almost like, it's almost like there should be a, tr- it should be a trilogy. There should be a, some, hopefully he'll some, do another, some kitschy artist from the seventies, um, <laughs> you know, maybe Giorgio Moroder or something. I don't know. I don't know who you'd pick, but, uh, but Ed Wood and big eyes really complement each other. Uh, and and you can really feel the similarities in the style uh, in, of the writing. Uh, Burton gives them both a completely different visual sense, which you know shows that he isn't exactly a one trick pony necessarily. Um, but but Depp is it's probably my favorite Depp performance because he just he just goes for the gusto. Um, he gives him this wide eyed, not, you know, even though he's making these sleazy and and occasionally you know schlocky movies, um, you know, he's just totally going for it. You know, I was like. 
you know, somebody comes out of the, they have the, you know, the, the obviously Doctor the Truth. There was no grand gala premiere of Plan 9 from Outer Space, but let's give it one. It, let's give it the premiere it deserved that it never got. And someone comes out going, that was the worst movie I've ever seen. Worst movie I've ever seen. Well, the next one will be even better. You know, it's just, <laughs> that, that's, that's probably my favorite line in the film. But um, it, uh, you know, it, it never fails to delight. And, and it's got that he- theremin heavy score, which is a real plus. Uh, and, uh, you know, that supporting cast, uh, I mean, Bill Murray as his friend, Bunny, uh, yeah. comes to mind. I mean, so great. Martin Landau is great. I, I remember the, the, the year it came out, um, I went to this film fest, uh, in, uh, Syracuse, New York, uh, that sadly, uh, is now defunct. Uh, it's last year was last year, uh, after its 35th anniversary, 35 millimeter anniversary, they decided to call it quits. Um, but I went, uh, years and years and years ago, right after Ed Wood came out and they had a panel about Ed Wood. Um, because it turns out one of the regulars uh, who goes to this thing every year went to this. I don't know if he's with us anymore. It was a, a producer named Alex Gordon, um, who he and his brother used to bring over like weird British genre pictures and try and get them into drive-ins and stuff. And they they produced a few notable films and a few pretty schlocky films. The Bla- the Brain from Planet Eris, I think, was one of their big triumphs. Um, Amongst other things. Uh, but one of his other claims to fame was that he was a friend of Ed Wood's. And uh, I think uh, produced Bride of the Monster uh, with, uh, with uh, Bo- uh, Bela Lugosi as the scientist who has oh, the, yes. the giant ape. And, and of course, Tor Johnson, you know, he won't harm you. He's harmless as a kitchen. Um, <laughs> and that sort of thing. And so he was, they, he was trying to debunk the myths about Ed Wood that were shown in the film. And, and uh, you know, like, like Bela Lugosi never swore. He's a complete gentleman. But, of course, he's quite foul-mouthed in the movie. That was that was a major uh, sore point with him, and also, you know, on the issue of the cross dressing, he said that, uh, you know, it's like uh, the whole thing about Ed Wood liking women's clothes, despite the fact he made Glenn or Glenda a whole film about the topic, uh, you know, when it was still pretty taboo. He, uh, you know, you know, the, the, they make up such a big deal about him being a transvestite. I only saw him in women's clothes a couple of times, you know, kind of things like. Well, that's probably you know it's like the tip of the iceberg. Then. <laughs> yeah, it might um, be that, that you saw. So, but that you know, just to meet somebody who was a friend of Ed Wood's and and you know, kind of witness his sad, slow decline was was kind of a treat. Um, but uh, I, I think, uh, and it's you know, it's understandable to be upset about that sort of thing. But I think that film will definitely survive. Uh, you know. And, and preserve the wood legacy yeah. for a long, long time. I mean, I don't see that film uh, dying out uh, anytime soon and certainly stands out as one of the strongest, you know, certainly, if not the best, certainly in the top, you know, handful of, of Tim Burton films. So what do you, uh, what do you make of Mars Attacks? Because I know this polarizes some people. Uh-oh. I, I mean, I like it. I love Mars Attacks. I, I think, love Mars oh, Attacks. Oh, good. I'm glad we can agree on that. <laughs> I mean, uh, the ones I tend to dislike are the ones that, in general, are, are you know, notable stinkers. Um but, uh, you know, like, and we, we really, I mean, Planet of the Apes really in 2001 really is the first stink bomb. Before that, we had Mars Attacks and Sleepy Hollow. Um, and we, we had the, uh, there was the aborted Superman Lives. Oh, which that's was, right. He, he spent like Nicholas, a year trying to get, a, get that Cage. off the ground. Yeah. And there's a documentary about it, which is really eye-opening just to see what, what could have been. And <laughs> I, it's hard to imagine that the film would have been great, but, uh, uh, or even passably good because, because Cage is so weird as Superman. It's just hard to kind of get my head around the idea that he could be a decent Superman. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, there. It's all there. I I, uh, 
I, I yeah, I really like Mars Mars Attacks. I I love its kitschiness. I love its you know its ode to the fifties low budget uh, science fiction picture, and I love the humor in it and the fact that he attracted such a huge cast of A list actors oh, yeah. to be in it. That's a great cast, um, and uh, you know everybody's hamming it up to the the nth degree, and it it uh, you know it pays homage to old fifties sci fi movies. Of course, Mars Attacks itself was a series of I think of bubblegum cards. That were exceedingly violent. Like I guess they were banned because they were so violent and off-putting. Uh, and they came out in the '50s, and then they got revived again with a reissue at some point, I think, in the '80s, and which led up, uh, to, I guess, to a comic book, and then eventually the film. So you know the the concept that wouldn't go away. And uh, you know I, I've seen other odes to this era. Uh, you know of, of, of movies that there was that remake of um, uh, not Invasion of the Body Snatchers. There's another one about the. Uh, the invasion from Mars, I think, or invaders from Mars, uh, where, where they hypnotize people with a chip in their neck or something. I think Toby Hooper did it, and it wasn't very good at all. Uh, you know, and there are other attempts to kind of c- capture that feel, killer clowns from outer space. The Blob may may be the best remake, other than this. Of I was just trying to yeah, think well, of the, the Blob movies. works because the original Blob was works. so silly. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> it, it's there. The, you're not exactly talking down to anyone with that one, but 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 this just had that that gleeful, giddy silly uh approach you know the, the martians uh you know are just this ridiculous force of of nature <laughs> this giddy sort of mischievous i mean they're kind of like gremlins i guess with ray guns yeah you know if you if you want to boil it down but of course you know the, the the burton sensibility you know prevents you from thinking that because they just have that great design and there's a, there's quite a bit of humor in uh in the way they're portrayed and then their reactions to things and the language and stuff and then the fact that uh you know spoiler alert uh slim whitman saves the day it's just the the beautiful icing on the cake and that's sylvia sylvia sydney from uh, beetlejuice who plays the grandma who there you go yeah lo- who loves slim whitman and that's how we find out uh, what the uh, instead of the 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 uh, germs of of um of War of the Worlds, it's Slim Whitman that that, that uh, ultimately proves to save mankind, which I love because I just grew up watching those terrible Slim Whitman TV record ads. So um, I, I really feel like I could watch this movie right now and just <laughs> and not re- not regret a single minute of it. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, and I am host of The Food Podcast. Now, this is not a cooking podcast. We'll talk about the history of food, we'll meet the players in the food world, and we'll explore the ingredients that fill our lives with flavor. Check us out on iTunes and Stitcher. We'd love to hang out with you. Well, we're moving into uh, Tim Burton's later and decidedly mixed uh, autumn years, I guess. I'm, I'm sure he's still got a lot of films left in him. But um, you know, once we get past uh, you know, Planet of the Apes, things start to go a bit haywire. But before he made that film, uh, he did uh, make a film that I feel like has been kind of, if not forgotten, uh, kind of underrated. And I, and I did go back to it recently and really enjoyed the wonders of uh, Sleepy Hollow, his take on the Headless Horseman tale, again, working with Johnny Depp. Um, on the uh, Washington Irving story of, of Ichabod Crane and his battle against the mysterious pumpkin-throwing horseman who terrorizes the, the people of, uh, of uh, Hudson River Valley. And, uh, you know, I have pretty strong memories of this story as a kid because there was a Disney, animated Disney version, um, you know, Ichabod Crane and the Headless Horseman, I think it was called, uh, with, uh, with a, and it was, a, it was from the early 50s, had a lot of gusto. Bing Crosby did the narration. Uh, and the horseman was a beautiful piece of animation. Uh, 
And I think maybe even Frank Frazetta might have been involved in his character design. I know there was some some major um, artist uh, at, at work on that uh, particular creation. It's pretty terrifying, um, you know, when you're a ten year old kid or whatever. Uh, and and I actually got to I actually got to interview Burton over the phone for this one. So, oh no, kidding! Yeah, and uh, and cause it was a Paramount release. It wasn't a studio that he normally worked with. Uh, most of his films, I think, are, are Warner Brothers. Um, Big Fish is a Columbia project, but for the most part, uh, I think he was a Warner guy and occasionally a Disney guy. Um, this was a rare Paramount picture for Burton and uh, a chance to uh, dig into a, an influence that he often talked about but hadn't necessarily drawn on, and that was Hammer Horror Movies. And I think his desi- desire here was to basically make the American Hammer Horror Movie, a, a gothic historical horror movie uh, with rich... Uh, with rich, um, ca- uh, you know, character and, and production design, and uh, and cast people like Christopher Lee as the judge, and and Michael Goff, uh, who played Alfred in the Batman movies, who's a veteran of those '60s Hammer horror movies and Amicus horror movies, and, uh, and of course you got Depp, and you've you've got um, <sighs> the actor who played Uncle Monty in With Nail and I, whose name escapes me at the moment, Richard Richard Griffith. Griffith there we yes. go, and who's also in the Harry Potter movies, and um, and uh, you know also. Uh, uh, another actor who was in Beetlejuice's name, uh, he was later found, also found with child pornography, and now I've forgotten. Jeffrey Jones. Jeffrey Jones. There we <laughs> oh, go. I'm sorry that I remembered that, but I do. You no, know, Ferris Bueller's <laughs> principle. Let's go with that. Yeah, let's, let's go with that. Strike the <laughs> child porn from the record. And um, and it, it's a film that I think it got mixed reviews at the time. Uh, I think it's aged pretty well. Christina Ricci gives a great performance as the daughter of a man who's a landowner whose head has been cut off. And, of course, there's the... You know, is it really a ghost of a headless horseman who's going around uh, decapitating all these landowners, or is there a plot to seize control of the Hudson River Valley, or you know what is going on here? And uh, you also have a great Christopher Walken performance with no dialogue, but just his eyes and some really sharp teeth as the Hessian um, horseman who uh, curses uh, curses this valley, or does he? Uh, <laughs> and uh, you see him in flashback form and. He he's, he strikes a pretty great figure in his very black riding outfit and and uh, fright wig. Um, so there's there's a lot going on here, and and Depp seems to be having a bit of fun here without going down the Pirates of the Caribbean role. Like he's 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 playing a character, but he's not, and he's kind of a bumbling guy who who's, who wants to you know he's a he's he's an expert in forensic crime solving in 1799 but uh you know also is kind of squeamish and scares yeah, easily yeah that's the thing i think that maybe people don't think of with depp but i think is very key to a lot of his his great work and you know he's kind of well he's He's. I think he has tested a lot of people's patience in recent years with some of the decisions that he's made with his career. But uh, but the stuff about Depp that I've always really liked is that he he does fear really well. He is he plays a great coward, you know. And yes. and for someone who is often the lead in movies, it's unusual that they cast someone who plays a really great coward. Like he is he does being terrified almost better than than almost anybody uh, and i think that's why he made a great hunter thompson because hunter thompson is is someone who is terrified a lot of the time but uses his wit to get out of trouble and and i think it's largely his own doing because usually in his characters and his books and what have you he's he's twisted on on any number of of substances but uh, but that's what made 
Depp's casting in that film so good, and I think that's what works so well in Sleepy Hollow. He is he is scared all the time, and it's funny. <laughs> it's funny to have someone who is constantly jumping at shadows to be in a in a movie that's all about shadows. Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of those old, uh, you know, nineteen forties kind of horror comedies with with Bob Hope, where Ghost Breakers or the Cat and the Canary, where he's 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 making wisecracks and you know, walking around an old, an old spooky house with a flashlight, you know, but all the while he's just shaking in his boots. And, you know, Depp isn't doing a Bob Hope impression. I'll, we'll leave that up to Woody Allen in Love and Death. But uh, he, he is quite funny here and, uh, and, and plays a character without going into caricature. Uh, you know, you mentioned the Hunter S. Thompson role, and I think he was great uh, doing that. But I also think it kind of tainted him a little bit, you know, because you saw elements of that creeping into later characters. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and then he comes back for the Rum Diary and basically plays like a Hunter S. Thompson light character. So yeah, well, that makes sense too, based on the author oh, of that sure. movie. But yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. Um, yeah, a, yeah. It seems like a well he kind of returns to. Yeah. Um, but but here it's 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 nice to see him play a, a character who's, you know, I mean, he's pale faced, he's got kind of wild hair, and he's got all these strange. Uh, scientific devices but there's there's a heart there as well there's, yeah you know there's 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 a, a thread of romance through the film with uh, the christina ricci character and that's that's nicely done and nicely played and um and you know so it's 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 not completely just out to lunch like say alice in wonderland which i don't really feel like talking about because it's such a depressing film it is yeah um, it's it is despite the casting despite the visuals it is a movie that just feels empty and and it's yeah, there's no grounding there, and I felt no. that Sleepy Hollow had a nice grounding in in this village. I think it was all filmed in England, but they try to make it look like upstate New York, and yeah. just after the uh, American Revolution, and and uh, the the feel for time and place is really nice in that film. It, it's and uh, and then the horseman looks great, of course. Yes. You know, so you know, I may have a because I was always fascinated by that tale and the, you know some of those Washington Irving stories. Also, he also Rip Van Winkle. Um, you know that that American folklore aspect, I think, is really nicely preserved with this kind of hammer horror, uh, you know, atmospheric and uh, richly textured approach. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, now, we mentioned that um, uh, the Planet of the Apes is kind of that midpoint where things started to kind of go south. And that's not to say that every film that he's made since then have, have been Alice in Wonderland. There have been some interesting ones amongst the ones that didn't quite hit. Uh, I, I, you know, it's funny. Some of the ones that are his most popular at the box office are the ones that I'm least interested in. Uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I don't really feel like like I would want to talk about. No. I know a lot of people really like... It has like, its uh, moments. Yes, it does have its I moments. I love the squirrels. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, having... Uh, uh, Deep Roy played all the Oompa Loompas was was kind of a clever thing, but but it, it feels kind of pointless. Like, yeah, why bother? Uh, now you said you like Big Fish, so I don't know if you want to say a few things about that. Yeah, well, Big Fish is is a fable. It's it's based on a on a on a book whose author's name escapes me at the moment. Um, you know, we do have the internet, you know, to remind us of these <laughs> things. You know, I could have just written it down, but that would be too easy. But the, yeah, the, the novel is by Daniel Wallace, screenplay by John August. And so they're two people that, that aren't real Burton collaborators. It's almost like he kind of came in as a hired gun and still managed to put a stamp on it. It's a Columbia Pictures title, which is, again, not a studio that he's normally known for working for. So it's it's not... 100% a, a Tim Burton project, I feel, but it is kind of a neat fable about this this uh, old man uh, played by Albert Finney telling his tales of his uh, his ramblings as a young man played by Ewan McGregor. Um, 
and uh, telling them to a son, played by Billy Crudup, who's kind of fed up with the old man's bullpucky uh, from over the years because he was not a great father. He's kind of an absent father, and he's, you know, anytime there's a fa- family gathering, he gets to hear these stories of how he caught some big fish and, and uh, you know, that took his wedding ring and he had to catch the fish to get the ring back. And, and he's just heard these stories so many times and he kind of dominates every conversation. And, and uh, you know, he, it's basically about him getting to kind of to re-know his dad while his dad is on his deathbed. And then seeing these wonderful fables play out with a great cast, you know, besides Ewan McGregor as the, the young version of the Albert Finney character, you also have people like Steve Buscemi and Loudon Wainwright III showing up as some of these characters he meets along the way. And of course, Big Fish, it's a fish story. It's all made up. It's None of it's true. But, uh, but you know, you, you want to believe it just because of the telling of the story is, is so wonderful. And, uh, again, it, it's, you know, it's not a complete home run, but it's it's kind of got a nice, lovely, lilting uh, feel to it. Uh, you know, Burton kind of reins back some of his own tendencies, I think, and, and lets the cast kind of do the work. And uh, and he's got a really great story to work with. Yeah, yeah, I've I've always liked uh, a big fish, and uh, I think that that you've you've pretty much nailed it. So I'm just going to leave it there. Uh, and given that our time is running short, I wanted to say a few things about Sweeney Todd, uh, the demon barber. Now, uh, here's this came out in 2007. Again, Johnny Depp was his leading man for the sixth time. It's a version of the Stephen Sondheim musical. Now, Depp plays Benjamin Barker. He's a barber in 19th century London with a beautiful wife and daughter who gets sent away to prison by evil Judge Turpin, who is the awesome Alan Rickman, yes. uh, because he covets Barker's wife. The... Um, the wife poisons herself. The judge raises the daughter as his own, later deciding he's going to marry her, which is super creepy. Barker eventually returns to London and, crazed with vengeance, takes on a new name, Sweeney Todd, and reopens a barbershop above a meat pie cafe run by a strange widow, Mrs. Lovett, played by, at the time, Tim Burton's wife, Helena Bonham Carter. Uh, now, this thirst for vengeance becomes uh, very expressionistic with the paint red blood spraying everywhere even on the <laughs> lens of the camera and mrs lovett's meat pie serves as a convenient way for for uh the the character to get rid of the bodies that start piling up in this thirst for vengeance uh and there's a great fantasy sequence right in the middle of the film with with uh the two lead characters by the seaside with yes. Depp in a brightly striped <laughs> full, full body swimming trunks looking sort of like a ghoulish puppet uh right out of <laughs> nightmare before christmas now this is one of those musicals that is, you know, not populated by professional singers. I don't think Depp or Carter have done a lot of musicals per se, but they really acquit themselves pretty well. And uh, and I think that that this is great work from Burton. In fact, maybe my favorite sort of of the century. Um, it's uh, it's. It is. Uh, I found myself just really enjoying it, and I I left. The, I remember remember leaving the theater feeling really charmed and not particularly grossed out despite all the blood i think it's just so over the top that you can kind of laugh at it and i also should mention sasha baron cohen of course who most people will remember as borat he is good in a brief role uh, as well as timothy spall who uh who plays the cat's paw to the judge that's right um the beetle yes so yeah i would say that if people are looking for for burton that they haven't seen a recent burton that that would be a good place to go well i was a big fan of the musical sweeney todd Going way back to when uh, I, I caught the uh, Angela Lansbury, uh, Len Cariou version on uh, some cable channel back in the 80s. And it's one of the, actually, it's one of the first things I ever recorded onto a VHS tape because we'd just gotten a VCR and it was on, I don't know if it was an A&E or one of those early 
cable channels. But, uh, you know, and even that was fairly, you know, there's a fair bit of blood in the stage version. So um, I, uh, I, really, uh, I really thought that uh, Burton did a good job with this. He seemed like the right guy to do it, even though musicals aren't really his thing. But he's kind of done production numbers of a sort, you know, in, in one film or another. Uh, you know, so just adding music to it is not a big deal. And uh, I think Depp tinkers in playing in rock bands, I think. so. I yeah, think he does. He does. That's true. I think he, he does have some, some innate musicality that, you know, <laughs> as much as Keanu Reeves does with Dogstar, I suppose. Uh, so, uh, you know, I felt it did the, the play justice. I didn't really feel like anything was really missing from it. Um, you know, I, I thought they were him and Helen Bonham Carter were natural to play to play those uh to play those leads and and the character acting uh, casting is great and a great production design in fact i i, I get i i could be wrong and, and and i'm sure someone will tell me you know you mentioned edward gory i i thought he had some sort of role in the design set design of the, the original broadway production i know that he did some broadway set design i know he designed a production of dracula I think okay the frank, i didn't know that i think the frank langella stage version of dracula from the 70s was actually an edward gory design and i think he might have been consulted by uh by Sondheim for, for this, uh, production. And, um, so, so there's kind of a, a feel of a bit of a crossover. I love the kind of the leached out almost like just almost black and white look. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, I love films that can pull that off. And then you get, like you say, you get the great dream sequence that kind of just throws that all in the waste paper basket just to give you your eyes a break. <laughs> it seems. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think I like it better as a, as a Sondheim adaptation than the recent out of the woods. Uh, with Meryl Streep as the witch, which which I enjoyed, but I, I felt it had some some weak spots along the way. Whereas um, this is pretty strong stuff story wise, and I think it just goes completely grand guignol with it, and that's the way to go. <laughs> Well, that's our look at our favorite corners of the Tim Burton universe and a few of the not-so-favorite corners. Uh, you know, we, we completely glossed over Dark Shadows, as it should be. Um, <laughs> Though Eva Green makes it worth seeing. Well, now I feel like I should either watch it or fast-forward through it. I'm not sure, because I did see it in the theater, and I, I just did my best to forget it at the time. But, uh, you know, Miss Peregrine at least gives me hope that that he can recover from the last recent films, including that Alice in Wonderland debacle. You know, which which also, made a crap load of money, so I guess it... Yeah. You know, Frankenweenie also is worth seeing. We didn't talk about that. I think that's quite lovely and, and sort of harkens back to his Edward Scissorhands uh, great days. Yeah, and uh, he's, he's got some stuff in the works that could either be good or dreadful, depending on, on your perspective, but at least you know we can hold out hope that it won't be bad. Uh, you mentioned uh, during the break that... Uh, the, the, he's going to take another run at uh, at Beetlejuice or the further adventures of Beetlejuice, as it were. That's the rumor, I and mean, it's it's been in the works for some time. And now I think the uh, the key pieces are, are it's as close as it's ever been to getting made. Partly because Michael Keaton is is a bankable star again, and he's interested. And I gather Winona Ryder, who also, thanks to Stranger Things, is is uh, is is an entity. Uh, you know, so all of those those pieces I think make it a likelihood as as well as as it ever has been in terms of raising money to get it made, uh, provided Burton wants to do it. It's funny because Michael Keaton. You know, he's aged, obviously, since Beetlejuice, yet that character is so decrepit and disgusting that it, it's, it probably, like, he probably can play the character and have it look exactly the same. I as imagine. And the makeup, of course, will help. And the other one you mentioned was, a, was a, uh, apparently a live-action remake of Dumbo, and I, which doesn't surprise me, given that they've done Jungle Book and, 
and uh, a few other of these titles. Uh, Cinderella was recently redone, and Beauty and the Beast is in the pipe. I, I, I can't say I love this trend. I didn't mind the Jungle Book, although that giant CGI ape being gigantic all of a sudden, the orangutan was a bit much, but... But uh, but you said they're going to do Dumbo. That's the rumor, and apparently Burton is attached. Ah, great film does not need to be remade, and uh, I don't know what they're going to do about the singing crows. <laughs> if they're going <laughs> to, yeah, you know, that's, that's who, who can say. Uh, but uh, I'll, I look forward to seeing what he does with Pink Elephants on Parade. Um, that, that's it for our show. Uh, if you want, you can uh, contact us via Facebook. We have a Facebook page, of course, and uh, we're on Twitter at Lends Me Your Ears. And uh, we also have an email address, called, which uh, goes by the name of Lends Me Your Ears Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, on, uh, personally on Twitter, I'm at, at NS underscore S C O O K E. And I'm at Karsten Knox, that's spelled C A R S T E N K N O X. Once again, uh, if you like the podcast and want to help out, you can go to our Patreon and uh, chip in a few pennies there. And uh, as usual, we'd like to thank the folks at CKDU 88.1 FM and the Village Soundcast Network. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.